This episode of Positive Space is brought to you by the Folding Art Horse, makers of professional-grade drawing horses. The patented Folding Art Horse uniquely folds flat, allowing for greater storage and portability. If you or your university don't have much storage space, the Folding Art Horse is for you. They're great for travel, too. Check out the Folding Art Horse at thefoldingarthorse.com. Welcome to Positive Space, Conversations and Art Foundations, a production of Foundations in Art, Theory, and Education, also known as FATE. Positive Space is a podcast providing opportunities for those passionate about art foundations to discuss and promote excellence in the development and teaching of college-level foundations in art studio and art history classes. Welcome to Positive Space. Today we have two exciting guests that I'm happy to have conversations with. We have Emily Sullivan-Smith from the University of Dayton and Jessica Burke, who goes by JB, from Georgia Southern University. So welcome, ladies. Excited to have you on the show today. Thank you. Thank you. Excited to be here. Yeah. So how about we start with just kind of a general introduction. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about, you know, the classes that you teach and maybe a little bit about the art that you make. So Emily, do you want to start us off? I'd be happy to. So my role at University of Dayton is as foundations coordinator. So I'm responsible for teaching 2D design, 3D design, and color. Um, There are two other classes in our foundations program that um, are run by other people. And then my, my art making is really a hybrid practice. I'm trained as a printmaker, um, but have a, a general interest in sculpture and surface design. So kind of, you know, whatever the idea really lends itself toward. But all of the work is looking at the human relationship with nature as it changes through time. Wonderful. Very, very cool. And how about you, JB? Well, I'm JB. And I am a foundations director at Georgia Southern University. Um, I do have a course release for that. So I'm on a 3-2 and I can teach typically in the fall any of our four foundation studios. Uh, It's usually 2D design uh, and drawing two. And then I also teach a lot of the advanced drawing courses. I teach illustration, I teach figure, and I teach drawing four. And I have also taught graduate drawing studios. Uh, And then as for my personal work, I'm primarily interested in the figure. Um, Trained as a painter, working mostly with drawing the last few years, and uh, interested in the effect of popular culture on identity, mostly focusing on uh, gender, uh, power dynamics, performance, things like that. Very, very cool. Well, I'm curious, how did you guys get into teaching? And and maybe more importantly, what drew you to to, to want to teach at the college level? Do you want to tackle that first, Emily? Sure, I'd, I'd be happy to. Um, I didn't initially intend to become a teacher. <laughs> I'm kind of happy <laughs> about I embrace the winding pathway of professional life. Nice. I, I do too. Absolutely. I really relish in the unknowingness. Of <laughs> so I was offered a teaching assistantship at Kent State University, and I actually turned it down when it was first offered to me. Um, mm. was encouraged by my graduate advisor to rethink my life choice, which I <laughs> And I really haven't turned back since. My first class, I can remember all of their faces. I was as nervous as I probably ever have been in my life, but um, really having an opportunity to share my love for for art making was infectious. So Mm. I started out my career teaching making, which is, I mean, as you know, very process oriented um, and just really love the chemistry of, of printmaking and mixing colors and, you know, all of the, the matrices, all the types of matrices, but about, um, Probably toward the end of my graduate career, I was given to teach foundations courses and uh, certainly applied for jobs in both categories. But the more I thought about my, my personal practice as an artist, it helped me really to embrace the idea of foundations um, because I really did want to be supported in an interdisciplinary practice. Mm-hmm. And 
was a little bit concerned about not being printmakery enough. Um, and <laughs> professor, but I really love the opportunity in the classroom to talk about, you know, just creative practice and what it means to be an artist and the context of, um, you know, being a mirror for culture and the history of art making and all these really delicious ideas that are, are more suited, I think, for that foundational course, helping students to think about what art making is rather than those uh, discipline-specific classes like printmaking. But I do have the opportunity through my job to teach both. Um, I'm permitted to teach printmaking, which um, I think is a really generous nod from the university to allow me to do that. So um, I kind of have be the best of all worlds here. That's really cool because I, I knew that you and JB sort of had that in common in, in that you taught foundations and that you led the foundations areas, but that you also were teaching and had the possibility of teaching within your specific kind of area, whether that's printmaking or, you know, drawing or painting or something. Um, really, really cool. Well, so JB, like, how did you get on this teaching train? <laughs> <laughs> teaching train. Um in some ways similar to Emily, I didn't necessarily start graduate school with a hard line of wanting to teach. And in some ways, I actually didn't want to teach because I, I'd worked with kids a lot uh, in teaching capacities and working with art, you know, summer camps and all that kind of stuff. And while I loved it, I knew that was not the audience that I really wanted to work with. Mm -hmm. I started doing in grad school... One of, my, one of my faculty, same thing, said, hey, we really want you to teach this anatomy figure class, which scared me to death. But I was like, well, I'll, I'll give it a try. And, and I did, and, I, and I, I just loved it. And I felt like it, was, it just clicked with me. It was such a good fit. And so from that moment on, I knew I wanted to pursue teaching at the university level, even though I was repeatedly told, as I tell our grad students, how difficult it is, and uh, the challenges <laughs> of uh, securing a position, but I didn't care. It was worth it to me, and I'm really glad I, I did. And in terms of getting into foundations, in some ways, it was kind of strange because part of the drive for my passion about foundations is really about what I didn't get in my own foundations education. Mm -hmm. So when I started teaching foundations, <laughs> those lack of knowledge areas were really evident and I have felt such a, a responsibility to my students to give them a firm technical foundation to build on that it pushed me to learn a lot of things on my own that I didn't get because that wasn't the type of foundations that happened in my school. Well, man, well, so what's so crazy is that it sounds like you guys both really began from a place of, of fear, which, which I think <laughs> happens so often when you teach anything, you know, it's, it's sort of a terrifying responsibility. It's an awesome responsibility, but I mean, I often find myself thinking really like I'm the one doing this. You know? <laughs> like, do they know yet that I'm not really, you know, perfect or there's, you know, um, that I'm still figuring a lot of things out. And so I'm curious, how did you guys push through that or what, what are some tips that maybe you share with grad students that you work with or adjuncts that, that you work with in terms of just getting through that fear, which can be really paralyzing at times, you know? Yeah, I think that it's an extension of our practice and, and as artists is that you learn to really become comfortable with failure. So every, every failure will ultimately point you towards the right answer. This is super philosophical, right? But um, I but think no, it's true. Yeah. yeah. Teaching any project or any course, there will be a period of trial and error and trial and failure and every class will respond differently to the curriculum. Um, so it, I think it's a, a matter of really just becoming flexible as a teacher and responding and being willing to let go of your ego and kind of change things around. Um, but that I, the fear was, was kind of a great driving force for me. And it's, mm -hmm often acted that way in my life that I was so worried about not living up to what was expected of me that I just studied hard, um, to learn what was, what, what I needed to do. But, you know, the other side of that is that one of the hallmarks of higher education is that faculty members don't always have teaching degrees. We're expected to be experts in our field. 
Right. I really rested on my laurels in that regard. It's, you know, I know how to be a printmaker or I know how to think about color. And so that's my first priority. And I can learn the rest as I go along. And, you know, fortunately, the system kind of supports us in doing that um, through Mm -hmm. everything. That's one of the highlights of adjuncting, I think, that you really get to work with a number of people and hear a lot of different voices and kind of try on different hats and see how they work for you. Hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you have anything to add to that, JB? Or do you have any thoughts on sort of how you worked through fear or tips that you might pass along to your adjuncts or to your grad students? Yeah, the only thing, uh, I think Emily's answer was fantastic. The only couple of things I might add is, you know, one is that the fear is not in the past tense. Um, I think I think being able to say that, that we continue to have fear Mm-hmm. Um, informing our decisions is a really good thing because that's real. And that also means that you are passionate and you care about what you're doing. So you want to do it the best that you can. So I think acknowledging that that doesn't go away, but that's not a bad thing as long as it's not, you know, crippling. Uh, sure. And the other thing I, I tell a lot of my, my grads and, and the adjuncts is, um, you know, don't be afraid to ask questions, whether that be, of yourself or of your peers or of your students. I think sometimes, especially when you start out, you want to present yourself as such a formidable icon of knowledge for this <laughs> topic, you know, that you don't ever want to admit that you don't know something or that something's horribly not working. Mm-hmm. And having someone tell you that that's okay and that that happens and that that's sometimes the best learning tool is that, you know, to share that experience with your students or with your peers is great. So I say, you know, don't be afraid to ask questions and don't be afraid to seek out resources that you may not realize you didn't have until you need them, you know? Mm-hmm. I'll jump on that train. Um, I was given a few little bits of wisdom when I first started teaching that I try to pass along. And a lot of my fears originated out of this, like, need, needing to be the queen of knowledge of Rousman. <laughs> not realistic. I think if we can show our students that we're still curious in our learners and we can teach them how to research, that that almost sets a better example than just having all the answers um, off the top of our heads. So saying yeah. things like, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but I'll find it for you. Or I don't know the answer to that. Let's try to figure it out together. Um, not only humanizes our position, but shows them how we would seek out that knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that it's an ongoing thing. It's not like you're going to ever stop being, cre- you know, being curious or being teachable or, um, you know, any of those kinds of things. Yeah, that's that's super exciting. Um, well, what what kind of what does foundations look like? Um, you know, at University of Dayton or at Georgia Southern um, in terms of, you know, you've talked about the kind of classes that you teach, but what makes up the foundations situation where you're at? (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll start with that one. Our, our situation is that uh, we, we, I mean, we are in kind of rural Southern Georgia. Uh, We do have a really traditional approach, I think, to in our foundations program. It consists of uh, four studio classes and two art histories, drawing one, drawing two, 2D design, 3D design, uh, art history one, and art history two. Um, that's actually going to change in the fall. We're going to um, pull drawing two out of foundations, still teach it, but take it out of foundations, and we're going to offer, we're going to start offering a digital foundations studio course, so it's going to change a little, but I'm going to speak to it as I know it now. Mm-hmm. Um, we typically run about four sections of each of our studios and then one section of each of the art histories. So we have a pretty pretty large uh, program, and um, it's all based in problem-solving projects. So it's one problem, and everyone can kind of choose how they solve it. Um, and then we – I think also we – don't do as I think we're pretty formal in the way we approach. I know we're pretty formal mm-hmm. in the way we approach foundations. Whereas I know a lot of other programs really explore content really early. Um, we have less content, more more formal concerns, technical concerns, and then we get a lot heavier into that as they progress through their programs. And uh, in our foundations, we don't have a portfolio requirement to get in to our department. 
And we don't have a portfolio review at the end of our foundation's year. We have an exhibition, but we don't have a, um, a portfolio review per se of foundations. But you can't move forward in the program unless you get C's or better in all of your foundation's courses. How curious. Wow, I, I didn't know a lot of that um, sort of coming in, and I've been at your university, so that's that's exciting. I, I guess I, I just assumed that you guys had some kind of portfolio review, but you, you guys do have that show at the end of the year mm-hmm. that sort of acts as a showcase and sort of a way to highlight the, the work that's going on. And since wow. it's a uniform curriculum, it's not like there's a – I mean, this, the, everyone's kind of doing the same – or near the same projects. So the, that's kind of why we're okay with the, if you get a C or better in the course, we understand what, what, what aptitude that's roughly equating to. Um, mm-hmm. Talked about introducing the review. Uh, we just, we just haven't really gone beyond discussion of that. Yeah. It, it can be in a long process, you know, in terms of navigating that. Absolutely. Well, what, what about you, Emily? What's it like over at University of Dayton? Do you guys have a review? Do you guys, what, what does it look like? Yeah, so I'll, I'll preface it by saying that I've been here for three years, and this the foundation's coordinatorship role was a new position with my tenure. Um, so there, it's a little bit of a moving target, which is really exciting for me that um, there's still some movement and some growth um, that's able to happen in terms of that review process and, and how everything is structured. But we do have five foundations courses, and they are kind of hybrid practice. I'm hopeful digital technology is just becoming a tool like anything else. Um, mm-hmm. Not necessarily a hybrid course anymore, but so we t- teach with iPads or laptops and image programs with all of the traditional tools that are generally available in foundations courses. And we do teach an an idea-based project model. So I think about it like hiding your vegetables. So instead of um, teaching about value specifically, we do an idea-based project that teaches value within. Mm. Um, So it's pretty, I think it's pretty exciting and it it tends to keep the the students pretty excited um, about what we're learning. Although again, it is, there are all of those traditional values of foundation embedded within that program. So after the first year, our students go through a foundations review, um, which our university thinks of as a mentorship opportunity. So we're not looking to regrade or anything like that, but really to help students to find their path. I think in a best case scenario, that's how we, we really treat that review. Mm-hmm. So the, the review, I think because the curriculum has changed so much in the last three years, um, is in the process of being updated um, to be determined on what that will end up looking like in the end. But um, I think it's a really nice opportunity for the students to have to do a professional presentation in some regard and to talk about their work and to really start to articulate their personal ideas about what happened. Um, in sure, sure. And sort of like reflect on, you know, what they made or the skills that they learned. Absolutely. We'll Absolutely. Have, and to have new voices in the conversation for them. Sure. Well, and how many faculty teach foundations where you are? Oh, it's a great question. So um, there's myself, and we have a full-time faculty member that teaches drawing, and then we have a full-time faculty member that teaches our foundation photo class, and the remainder of the courses are covered by adjuncts. So we have between... There, we have a lot of drawing sections, so I think we have four adjunct faculty teaching drawing right now. So it really ends up being quite a few people that are on board with us teaching foundations. Wow, it's sort of a, a team. And JB, I know that you have adjuncts and grad students. So at any given time, how many how many cogs are in the wheel in in terms of doing all of that? Well, we don't. We actually usually don't use adjuncts. We we do rely on grad students, GTAs. Oh, teachers. okay. But we have there's myself, uh, two other one tenure track and one tenured faculty, a lecturer that's on the 4-4, and then anywhere from two to four graduate students teaching two sections each per semester. So our grads are instructors of record, and they're teaching basically four courses a year for us. 
So not a huge group, but a good, strong group. Wow. And so, so then as, as the coordinator or as the director, you know, of, of your program, you know, walk us through like, what is a day in the life of, of, <laughs> of your sort of scenario, you know, because you're obviously you guys are professional art makers. You're also, per, you know, your professors, but then you have this administrative leadership, you know, role within your, your institutions. And, you know, I think we hear so much about coordinators and foundation coordinators and directors and all of these things. And I think sometimes there's just a lot of smoke and mirrors. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes we're not really sure what does that mean? Or do I want to do that? Or is is that the kind of job for me or, um, you know, things like that. And, and I think when Emily was talking about, um, you know, how, how, when we go through grad school, we don't really get taught how to teach necessarily. And, and I think being a coordinator is probably an even better example of we don't really get taught how to, how to coordinate, you you know, I mean, I know when I was in school, there wasn't a foundations coordinator. I mean, I just took a bunch of classes and we piled them together and that's what happened. Um, so, um, and it was great and I'm very thankful, but, but I think, you know, I'm just kind of, kind of curious sort of what, what do, what does life look like? What, what does your time look like in terms of managing those roles? I'll, I'll take that one first. I'll preface it by saying I'm pre-tenure, so it's hard to tell <laughs> what. <laughs> sure, sure. It's hard to tell what is the the pre-tenure busyness versus what the foundation's coordinator busyness is. But um, <laughs> one of the things that I've been charged with is having a vision for the foundation's program. And like I said, not all, all of the foundation's classes fall under my purview. So it's it's really the, that 2D, 3D, and color and design um, that I've, I have control over in terms of the curriculum. We do have a prescribed curriculum, um, which for, for my institution is the right answer. I've talked to a lot of different foundations coordinators about what their programs look like and how they balance their thinking about that. Um, but having the full faculty buy-in for what we do, since foundations is sort of an island tethered to all of the other disciplines, um, is really critical. So I really strongly prefer that any questions about the curriculum come to me and aren't on the adjunct's shoulders. I think that goes beyond their job description. Mm -hmm. So I do training with all of our new adjunct faculty anywhere between six and 10 hours prior to their start and their first time teaching in a semester and just go through all of the digital technology. Um, We have camera equipment. We're teaching our students to photograph their work in a professional way in their first year. Um, We have a large format printer, inkjet printer, that uh, the students have the capacity to print on. So we use an Apple TV to project our iPads. There's a lot of moving parts in terms of that digital technology. So just helping them to be comfortable teaching in what feels Mm -hmm. like thousand sometimes is <laughs> pretty important. Um, but then just sort of going through the, the curriculum and my hope for an adjunct faculty member is that they can become comfortable enough with what we're doing and how we're doing it, that the instructor flavor is really a possibility for them, that they're not simply repeating the, the wording in my assignments, but that they're imposing themselves on that as well. So we're all getting the same information across, but at the same time, the students are having a different experience depending on the person who's actually teaching them. Very, very cool. And JB, I know you mentioned, I think you called it a uniform curriculum, but is is that sort of a similar vibe? We also also have a prescribed uh, curriculum for our studio courses. And a day in the life, I do want to say that first I will take responsibility for the fact that I could be better at how I balance my time. Well, I'm sure we, we all could be, you know. I, mean. <laughs> I don't know if I have that answer that it, it's in a good one because I maybe am overcommitted, but I've done intentionally, I've done that myself. But um, I, as the director in our program, it's my responsibility to oversee everyone teaching in the studio courses for our foundations program. Uh, our grads do a one year training program with me the year previous to them applying to be GTAs. So um, I do that and I I meet with them weekly. They're assigned courses to shadow during that year and we meet and we discuss 
Uh, I give them readings to do. I give them questions to answer based on their their observations. And um, so we kind of build that way where they get familiar with the curriculum and they, and they hopefully are able to observe the courses that they would probably be teaching if they're given that appointment. And then, and then when they start teaching, I meet with the GTAs weekly to go over anything that they're coming up with in terms of, of the curriculum or classroom management issues. Or uh, we tend to grade together the first few projects just so that there's a kind of uniformity of expectation in terms of, you know, what's the range for an A look like for this particular project. And then also with my, I coordinate with my regular faculty and my full-time faculty uh, in terms of, you know, as they come up with things that they'd like to try within the projects or change within the projects, I also coordinate um, all the ordering of textbooks uh, for all of the foundation's courses and the supply kits. Uh, three of our four studios have kits that go with them. So I'm the one that manages ordering those to the bookstore as well as updating them with our supplier. And then I also manage the form and content exhibition in terms of securing a juror and the prizes for that exhibition. And then um, I also work with, you know, issues that come up with students that have problems or grievances uh, in their courses. Our kind of path to that would be first they would go to the instructor for the course, then they'd come to me. Uh, if we couldn't resolve it together, then it would go up to the chair. So I spend a lot of time doing administrative stuff for the program as well as dealing with with student issues that come up. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I would add my voice to that, that that last list of things that JB does. Those are definitely in my life as well. Ordering kits. <laughs> it takes more time than you think. It, takes, not, it sounds easy, but oh, oh yeah. And for every question that you think you know how to answer for a student, you know, there's there's always a nuance. Um, and so I think that there is a mentorship role with the adjunct faculty in yeah. helping guide them through how to how to resolve these problems and to have really good boundaries with your students, what you can say no to and, you know, all of those different kinds of things. It's a busy day in the life, but it's a lot of yes. just problem solving as it comes toward me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and it seems like it's just such an important thing to be able to pay attention and really hear what's going on within the program, you know, whether that's from the student perspective or whether that's from, you know, grad students or adjuncts or other faculty is being able to sort of pull all those voices together and, you know, like you guys are saying, sort of have like a vision or direction, you know, in which things are, are going to kind of go because otherwise it's just a bunch of, a bunch of sound, right. And just a bunch of movement. Um, I would add to that I, too, in our department, um, the foundation's courses are the only ones that get, that have a review attached to them. Our only other review is a senior review. So I think the foundation's coordinator role here is in just making sure that we all are sort of running smoothly and we all are communicating well together and everybody knows what's expected because as a group, ultimately, we're seen by the whole faculty. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, and you guys had mentioned, you know, the uniform or the prescribed curriculum and, you know, how that, that really had some, some pros in terms of consistency, but, you know, still being able to uh, teach to your strengths and kind of, you know, handle things in, independently, but but still within that kind of umbrella of consistency, you know, and, and all of that. Have you guys had any, I guess, challenges within that or has, has that, or did I just dance around the landmine there? Uh, are, are there any, you know, cons or, or tips that, that you might encourage someone else who's, who's maybe trying to shift into, you know, having a more unified curriculum, you know, how do you start? How do you get that really important buy-in? Well, I don't think it's right for every program. I'll start sure. saying, um, JB and I had the opportunity to talk this summer at Integrative Teaching Internationals Think Tank <laughs> um, about mm-hmm. this topic. And, you know, we, we share a lot of commonalities in our program in terms of needing that faculty buy-in based on the size of the program. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for me, in the last three years, it, I think it really comes down to having a collaborative um, co-faculty. I need my adjunct faculty to want 
to do that with me. And so it's part of the interview process to discuss that with them, that these are the things that you can expect. Um, let me know now if that's not something that you're interested in. But because it's, I don't have any other full-time people working with me in foundations, but I, so I think that it's a learning opportunity for the adjunct faculty. We don't have a lot of graduate teaching assistantships, I think nationwide, that are focused in foundations alone. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's a way for them to kind of be exposed to that and have, I guess, a crutch in kind of a, in a way that they don't have to do all that curriculum building work, but they get to just sort of be on board and see what works for them for the future and what doesn't work for them for the future, but at least have a model to draw from. But it, I, I do believe that it's personality based. It hasn't worked for all of our adjuncts, uh, but it has worked for a lot of them. And the ones that it works for, um, they I do try to work really hard to make sure that they have a voice and that they're heard in terms of changes that they want to make. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and I think that's that's an important thing. You know that everybody feels like they have they have a place to say something and that there's room for, for what they have to say, because sometimes it can seem really complicated. You know, I think, um, you know, as an adjunct, I, I often felt like I was just sort of floating in the world, you know, and, um, and I had keys to this room, but I really couldn't move the chairs, you know, or if I did, I felt like I'd get in trouble or something. Um, so it can be like a really tender thing. Do, Do you find that, that you're, in a position where you're sitting in on, on their classes? Are you like evaluating the, the, the grad students or the adjuncts? Yeah. Are, are you in that kind of role? I don't sit in on their classes. That's not part of what's expected of me. Although I do offer that if they'd like me to do an observation for their packets for full-time uh, positions, that I'm happy to do that. But we, mm-hmm. I just try to talk with them weekly. Um, they're all, all the people that are working in the foundations program right now are just incredible and incredibly collaborative. Um, so they make it easier for me. Um, but we do see all the work at the foundations review. Mm-hmm. So, which is a tough balance. Um, having been an adjunct myself for a number of years, I always knew that I was being reviewed at the review as well. Right. Right. So it's, it's a, it's a balance back and forth. And what I the way that I try to accommodate that is just by, um, noticing and then having a conversation with and trying to make adjustments uh, person to person as needed. Mm-hmm. Well, and what what about you, JB? Are there times when you sit in on classes or you fill out forms or do any kind of like formal assessment? Yeah, I do. I well, I'm, I have to do that for the grads, so I'm required to complete a peer evaluation, observation of teaching for them. Um, at least once a year that has to be submitted mm-hmm. to our College of Graduate Studies. I usually try to do it once a semester just as a way to see what they're doing and how they're delivering information and some of the stuff that they're running into. It's, it's beneficial for both sides, especially if they've had some, you know, some issues with certain things. It's a good way for me to see what's happening. So, yes, I'm required to do that for my full-time faculty. Uh, similar to Emily, I am available to them because – we do have to have peer observations for our pre-tenure as well as our tenure application. So, but I don't, I'm not required, nor do I force an observation on my full-time faculty, but some mm-hmm. of them do ask me to do it. And one thing I want to echo from what Emily said was that I completely agree that the kind of uniform or prescribed curriculum approach, uh, if it works in a situation, I think it can be fantastic and beneficial on both sides of the desk. But I do think it's not for every program. Right. It, it, it works for us, I think, in terms of we've seen a big difference since moving to it in terms of what we can expect in consistency as students progress past mm-hmm. the foundations program. So I know the other faculty, you know, really appreciate knowing that everyone coming through our foundations ha- has been exposed to X, Y, and Z. So that's been really, that's been really helpful for me. Um, with the uniform curriculum, I have run into some issues where I do the same thing that Emily does, where before someone's hired at whatever level, it's made very clear that that's what we do and that's what they're coming in for. And I think that sometimes when you're so hungry for a job, you say, oh, yeah, that'll be fine. I can handle that. And if you've never done that before, sometimes when you when you start doing it, you know, maybe it chafes, maybe it's not 
comfortable for you in the right. way you thought it was. So it's not like you intentionally were misleading, but you well, sure. I mean, it's sort of know. hard to know. Yeah. yeah. And, and I do the same thing where I try to be available for feedback and say, you know, what can we change? But, you know, it's also difficult if there's one individual that's just not working for, you know, then you run into a, having to have a conversation where you can't change everything for one person because that doesn't work either. So it's, sometimes it's a delicate juggle, I think, to try to find a way where, you know, they feel like they have agency and they have a voice, but you're also not undermining the larger picture for, you know, eight, nine people that are, that are doing the same thing. So it's definitely been a learning curve because like you've already mentioned, you know, we're not trained to deal with these kind of like administrative or leadership things. And sometimes you step in it wrong and sometimes you, know, you do the right thing, but it's, it's definitely, you know, a moving target and something you figure out as you go. But I really have enjoyed it. I've found that it's, you know, and it's also allowed me to realize too, that being responsive to feedback and allowing those things to kind of organically change when they should has been great. Mm-hmm. Um, even though sometimes you might push against it a little bit, right? Maybe that's ego. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you, when you allow for that collaboration to be part of the process and you have people that want to be involved in that dialogue, what I've more recently come to is, you know, I, I have to be excited and push the people that are wanting to be involved in that and be part of that collaborative conversation. And I can't make the people that don't want to be involved in it. That's true. Yeah. That's, that's really true. And it seems like it's, it's so much about that relationship, you know, and sort of timing and and knowing how to navigate that landscape, which is super complicated. And especially when it comes to who has power and who doesn't, I mean, I I know that you have tenure JB, myself included, I I do not have tenure. I'm on a tenure track position like Emily, but but it becomes very different at times, uh, especially when you're teaching in a situation where your colleagues are very senior um, who who teach in foundations or have been an adjunct, you know, for a long time and are very established um, in that position. Um, So it can be like a really fragile thing, you know, and and I think it's, it's easy to come in and go, okay, you know, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. But, but sometimes the slower the change, sometimes the better, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really rely on my community, and I think that's one of the, I don't know, it's a really critical component to me um, as a person. So mentorship is huge, asking people who are more senior than me what they think about Mm -hmm. a situation, and just trying to temper my own thoughts or reactions to situations, um, because it is complex, and there's a lot of leadership and a lot of management and a lot of self-assessment that goes into having this role. So I think it's really Mm -hmm. critical that you know, we have the opportunity to be at conferences together and kind of talk about these things and, um, and the larger community, but that we also share, um, with our, our faculty in our department. No, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, it's so crucial to be able to kind of have those kind of conversations and really talk about, well, you know, what is, what does this look like and how do you handle this or how do you encourage someone to, you know, play to their strengths or how do you test the waters if it seems like, well, let's let's all try to do a project together or let's all try to, you know, have a critique together or do something similar and just see what that feels like. Just, you know, again, to sort of not not be afraid to try try the new things. But oh, I'm, I'm, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want one other thing that I know, like, because when you talk to your peers in conferences that are in different institutions and have vastly different experiences, one thing that I'm really lucky about is I have a chair that's very supportive of me and our program and the kind of vision that I have for the program. And I, I've seen a huge difference that can make and other, you know, friends of mine that talk about, you know, not necessarily having that support. It's a very different experience if you don't have that kind of backing. And the vast majority of my faculty are also very supportive um, in, in what I'm doing and, and helping me and, and feeling like, we're a team working towards a goal. So in some cases, I feel really lucky to have that situation because I know it makes a difference, you know, when you, when you have that versus when you, when you don't, you know? 
Absolutely. And I'm curious, having a prescribed curriculum does not necessarily mean or really probably shouldn't mean that it's going to be just stagnant and like forever paused. It can still be changing and growing. All the time. Now, I I do try for self-preservation to reserve major changes for summer. Um, There's Mm -hmm. not quite enough time to make uh, big changes or, you know, to have all the tools and supplies ready for a new um, class in between semesters. But there's, there are some um, uh, the, of the part-time faculty who are super engaged and want to give feedback um, and want to offer suggestions. And so we try to work together to make that happen or seeing in a foundations review that one of the assignments just didn't go over well with the faculty. Um, I think it's one of my responsibilities to hear that and figure out what the best solution is. So always a sort of changing um, direction, uh, but trying to be contemporary. I think ultimately we're trying to have a contemporary foundations program that reflects what will be asked of students in their futures. Um, that's, that's really the goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, and I'm curious, how large are your classes where, where you're <laughs> teaching? That's such a hot button question because we always want them to be smaller than they are. <laughs> right now, ours are capped at 18, but they're allowed to go up oh. to 24. So I've got, so we try to keep them, and that's been a drop. When I first came to Southern, 24 was the norm. Every, all our foundation studios were at 24 students. So we've used NASA to, as a way to drop that. So we've got it down to 18. But the advisors can override up to 22. So we're usually somewhere between, you know, 18 to 20, 16 to 20 per, per studio. I am super spoiled, and I'm going to admit that <laughs> the question. Um, I feel embarrassed to tell you, but we're capped at, we're capped at 12. And part of oh, the reason what? let it pass over, don't think about it. Uh, but part of the reason is that we use iPads and we only have a certain number of them that we can use for the students, but we are capped at 12, which is super, super dreamy. Wow. Sorry. Wow. I'm, I'm at a place where I think 24 sounds really dreamy to be honest. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Yes, this is extreme mathematics. Um, I'm also at a private institution, which I think uh, makes a big difference. I'm used to classes of 18 or larger when I was adjuncting. Yeah. Right. And I, and I should clarify, I teach collaboratively with wonderful colleagues. And so there's uh, myself and another another professor in each of the studio courses. So we're capped at 30 Hmm. Um, but sometimes that can go, it used to be, it used to start with a five, um, a long time, a, a couple of years ago, but, um, but it's gone down and, um, and then 40 felt just like luxurious, but, but now I think I've got 32 in one section and maybe 33 in the other. So it's, it's a lot of juggling and all of that excitement. Um, yeah, it depends on the institution's priorities. Sure, so sure. Research or teaching institution or teaching research equal, all of those, I think, play into how the university is willing to cap our courses. Right. And, you know, and t- when when you team teach, you can definitely break things up into smaller groups. And so, you know, I'm grading 16 or, you know, wh- whatever it might be from from time to time. But, but I'm always curious because it's just, I think it kind of gives a, a nice sort of look at you know, where we are and how things are often different. And so I think we can definitely, you know, kind of learn from that. You know, I'm curious, what what kind of committee load or what kind of, do you guys have a course release? I know, JB, you mentioned something to that effect in the beginning, but just in terms of your administrational roles, do you serve on less committees or do you, are there ways in which that's handled in terms of service or your teaching load? My my chairperson has been really responsive to um, the need for changes for service. So I don't have a course release for being a foundations coordinator, but it is counted as part of my committee work. So it, there is essentially a decrease in my committee load. Sure, sure. Which makes it possible. Otherwise, I think um, you end up working so many hours and wearing so many hats, it's, it makes it a little bit unfeasible to do everything with the same quality that you would want to. 
Sure, absolutely. Absolutely. And JB, you have a course release, correct? Yeah, I have an administrative course release, so I don't have any other reduction. So I serve on, so I don't get any service deduction or research deduction, or I, but I do get a teaching load. I get a, I get one course release uh, typically in the spring. And so, and it, it does, even with the, I mean, I don't want to sound ungrateful, but because the course release is, is lovely. Don't get me wrong. But I, the workload that you have is greater. I would, if it was not doing the work and just teaching another course, that would be less, you know, really. Like time, time-wise so, or planning yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, the course release does make it manageable. I, I agree, like, with how Emily said she had a reduction in service requirements. That makes it manageable to where you're not just burnt out and, and overloaded completely. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and that's awesome. But, you know, it is, it doesn't necessarily make it, you know, super lower in, in what you're expected to do. But I feel like if you take on this role, or if you're thinking about taking on this role, there's almost this expectation from yourself that you wouldn't do it if you were looking to kind of punch a punch a clock <laughs> and know, like, oh, I'm only going to work this many hours, period. You know, you just kind of, like, if you're, if you want the program to succeed and you want it to grow and, and be relevant, you just have to accept that it's going to be a pretty high workload. And that yeah. just has to be part of what you're interested in doing individually as a member of the university. I think. I agree wholeheartedly, JB. There's a level of altruism toward the program that's required that you sort of have to give yourself over a little bit, not to say that we have bad boundaries with our jobs. I try really hold those tight but there there's plenty of hours that are work just to keep it kind of moving and keep it relevant and keep everybody on the same page Mm -hmm. absolutely and and, I mean I I think that flows really nicely in into um you know if, if you guys had any advice for anybody that was you know um applying for jobs that are foundations coordinators or or thinking about sort of becoming a foundations coordinator at some point. Um, is there anything that you wish you knew maybe before you started or landmines to avoid or, you know, anything like that? I, I think I would say it's beneficial to have worked in foundations. Um, and, and I might even say at more than one institution before trying to take on a, a leadership role in a foundations program only to be able to know you know, what some of the variety is that's happening, what are some of the things that are working and things that are not so successfully working. So I would say like having some experience in just kind of plugging away at foundations coursework and also maybe having experience in more than one institution uh, to give you that, that knowledge that you can draw from would be super helpful. And the other thing I would say, and this is not intentionally a plug, but you know, there's, there's usually some panels um, consistently that, <laughs> hey, we can address that and have a group of people that are talking uh, about these things that, you know, I think is really, really helpful because I think you, you, can't, you can't really know what you're going to get into because like Emily said earlier, you're hit with stuff all the time that you are like, oh, well, that's, that's new. Right. So, it's, you know, you're never going to know everything that's going on or be fully prepared. And I don't think we would be as interested in it if we were. Uh, I think that uh, that difference is what's kind of exciting about it. But I would say that, you know, be familiar with Foundation's curriculum and, and its goal in your institution and think about how a coordinator position might help that or or be the kind of conduit between the students, the faculty, and the department goals. Yeah, I think that's all really sound advice, and I agree wholeheartedly. You know, the foundation's coordinator role is so multifaceted and also institution-specific, so getting to know, you know, what was the impetus for your hire if it's a new position, what is the department really trying to gain from Mm -hmm. the foundation coordinator role, but also, in, you know, making sure that you're being true to your own voice in the midst of that. Uh, but mm-hmm. it, I really do think that it's a problem-solving role. 
if I were to summate my days, it would be that I'm continuously problem solving. Um, and it's, it's things that I can't predict. Um, and I, I really love that about my job. And I really love that about teaching that I have a plan for every day, you know, for 16 weeks, I know exactly what's going to happen on every day, but my days are equally completely unpredictable. Mm -hmm. So just being able to be flexible and resilient, persistent, I think are really good personality traits for as an artist in general, being able to be persistent, you know, we get rejection in a lot of forms, a lot of the time, and that's not different foundations coordinatorship role. So just, you know, also having a, a good support system and a good community, also not an intentional plug for fate, but <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. Involved <laughs> with those communities, I think can be really like, I don't mean to be overly dramatic, but kind of life-saving and soul-saving that you know that you have sure. all these people around you that you can reach out to, or that you know where the like-mindedness lives. Yeah. And just being willing to share ideas and listen to other people and being flexible and as egoless as possible in some of those pursuits as you can be. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, I know the first time I did anything with the FATE organization, I was an adjunct and I didn't know anyone and barely knew what I was doing, you know, and, and it was just incredibly helpful and exciting to talk to others that were so willing to share information. They weren't keeping it away. They weren't locking it up. It was like, Oh, I tried this. Here you go. You know, try it at your school, see what happens or here's some ideas. Yeah. Just incredibly, incredibly helpful. Absolutely. One, one last thing that I'd add to that. Um, and this is maybe a note based on my relationship with JB is recognizing that when you're interviewing that (laughs) even if you don't get the job, those might be people who help support you through your career. Um, so just really trying to be, you know, easy to get along with and cordial and friendly and, um, have relationship building skills, I think is pretty critical through the process of interviewing. Yeah. And we're sort of around that, that time of year, you know, with, with it being, you know, January and coming into February, but that's such good advice because it's such a small community at the end of the day, you Mm -hmm. know, and, and I know somebody that, you know, that, you know, that, you you know, I mean, it just kind of all, all kind of gets tangled up together and yeah, that's, that's, that's incredibly helpful. Well, and I would say too, sometimes the, like you said, we're in interview season, right? Right. Sometimes, you know, when you don't get something, you may end up getting something that's even better for you or possibly better than you're about to serve because so, and, and in terms of like building that community with every interaction that you do in the art world, we do that as artists, but I think sometimes we forget that we also should do that as educators, you know, like you're always making connections as an artist with galleries or curators, but I think it's the same thing within this kind of educational world that we live in having those connections leads to a lot of opportunities for you because, you know, you were willing to reach out and, and kind of establish something. So I think, I think that's really important that sometimes we maybe lose track of a little bit, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. And I think it's, it's easy and sometimes maybe comfortable to some degree to sort of stay in our corner. You know, I'm going to keep my head down and I'm going to do my work and I'm going to, you know, whatever, and think about how exhausted I am or how busy I am or how excited I am or whatever, and, and maybe lose sight of my community, you know, which is easy to do, but it's so valuable, you know, to, um, to, to be aware of those that are around us and think about, you know, how we can contribute you know, to that broader conversation. Mm-hmm. And the shared experience. Cause like, um, you know, when we were at Think Tank this summer, I had a conversation with Emily that really helped me feel, even though she was not involved in the situation, just being able to talk to someone about it, that's not involved, but that has an insight that can kind of help right. you make you feel mm-hmm. like, thank you for, for being there for me. And having, and I've had the same kind of conversations with you, Val, where, you know, having that, outside person that's still familiar enough with what you do and what mm-hmm. you deal with to mm-hmm. be able to give you feedback and insight is, is like, sometimes life-saving. Yeah. Like, yeah. It absolutely is. I mean, that's, that's so true. And I, I think that when you're in a leadership role, they, they can be challenging sometimes. So it's not yeah. always appropriate to go to your colleagues yeah. at your peer institutions, but going to the people who have the same 
role in a different institution is a better fit for some of those issues. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And then it just creates a sense of like freedom in terms of learning something from a different perspective um, Mm -hmm. that might, you know, broaden your own problem solving skills, you know, where you are, which is probably a good thing, but it's hard, you know, it it definitely takes, takes energy and it takes work. And I think, you know, one thing that, that I've heard a lot from, from our community is just sort of, you know, how do you, how do you keep going or foundations is such a burnout and how do you, you know, keep the energy or, Because, you know, unlike other classes, you know, we're in a situation where we're really like reinventing or rethinking or reflecting or re-reflecting or going back to the the rest of the faculty and saying, what do you think? What do you think? And how, how do you avoid, you know, getting, getting burnt out on, on that? I don't know that I have a good answer to that, Valerie. Emily, you want to take that one? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So... I think it's, this is, oh my gosh, I look to the people around me all the time for answers in terms of that. But, you know, I did teach printmaking for a number of years before I moved into foundations and it's just a different kind of teaching. Um, Those advanced students have a sense of what it is to be an artist and have a sense of what it is to have a voice. And so if I were to write down and list all the things that I teach in foundations, it's anything from you know, the, the S the essential nature of your alarm clock in the morning. <laughs> right. That's right. Right. Possibly a backup alarm clock in the morning. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, there's so many different things that we're teaching that they don't even have context for the majority of what's maybe being talked about in that class. So I think about foundations, like you're in the middle of this room that has doors all the way around and you're just kicking them open a little bit for, for the students and everybody else beyond you is going to sort of fill in the blanks. But it is a really energy intensive teaching role, um, in foundation. So I look to my colleagues all the time, um, of which I have several really amazing people around me who encourage me to go home or encourage me to take a few hours off on a Saturday or who invite me out to dinner. You know, those are all really beautiful gestures <laughs> that I think help, help that burnout. Uh, but you know, it's challenging as an artist because, you're wearing three hats all the time. You're a teacher, you're doing service, and then you, you're a practicing artist in equal measure um, all the mm-hmm. time. It's easy to think that the work never stops, um, and it's easy to let the work never stop. So I'm not, I, am, I have no idea how you avoid burnout other than just a day at a time. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. I think maybe, maybe that's the answer, too, is I think when we talk about when we talk about trying to avoid burnout, maybe that's not the answer because that's impossible. So I think you're you're going to get burned out. It's coming up with coping mechanisms and strategies that allow you to, to get away from it, to kind of reset. That's mm-hmm. what you do because it's not just foundations too. Teaching the same courses within any area is going to get tiresome after Absolutely. a while. Absolutely. I think it's about reserving some time on your breaks where you're away from school and you're, you're intentionally away from school and you allow yourself some of that reset mm-hmm. is, is the only way it's manageable, really. I convinced myself last summer that um, going on long walks was part of my artistic practice. I, yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I think it really was. And, you know, I was, I was practicing getting lost, which I had just moved to a new city and a new neighborhood. And so I didn't know my way around and... Um, it was really kind of, uh, brain saving that I would reserve three hours a day to just walking and kind of wandering and getting lost and looking at things and picking up feathers and, you know, all these different <laughs> things that really That's have influenced. So I love it. No, it's just delicious, but it really has influenced my practice in terms of when I'm in the studio, I feel this necessity to be productive and sometimes that's not the right answer. So mm-hmm. um, that brain space to let you know, I'm not wasting three hours by walking. I'm doing something really good and productive, uh, but I'm also not kind of holding myself hostage in my studio. Absolutely. And it just seems like it's so crucial that we, you know, are able to model what we probably tell our students all the time, like rather than rage quit, like get up and work on a different drawing or work on a different, you know, um, material and just sort of crop rotate. But, um, but it's so important that, that we, we do that too, you know? <laughs> oh my God, that's hilarious. 
I'm going to take that line. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. You have to rotate your crops. You're going to burn up. You do. You're just going to blow up if you don't do it. So you have to do it. That's awesome. Well, I, you know, I I just want to tell you, I really sincerely appreciate you guys, you know, chatting with us today and, you know, your, your perspectives are refreshing and honest and um, I really look forward to seeing you both at the fate conference in April and getting to continue all of these conversations. Likewise, I look forward to sitting across the table with both of you in April. We'll make it happen. Definitely. Thanks so much. You guys have a great rest of your day. Thank Thank you too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Positive Space. If you're interested in being part of FATE's ongoing conversations on art foundations, visit the FATE website, foundationart.org. Don't forget the dash between the foundations and art. This episode's interview was conducted by Valerie Powell and was engineered and edited by Raymond Gaddy. Our theme music was provided by Lee Rosevere. Please join us next month for another visit to the Positive Space.